Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning to all of you joining us live across the United States, China, and this year in the United Kingdom. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I am pleased to welcome audiences from 88 venues to our 15th annual Chinatown Hall. Before we begin, I would also like to take a moment to express our condolences to the family of a close friend of the National Committee, General Colin Powell. We all mourn his passing. U.S.-China relations are at a crossroads. The last four years have seen ties between our two countries reach lows not seen since before the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and China in 1979. As the relationship undergoes enormous changes, the major constant is that all agree that U.S.-China relations will help determine the peace and prosperity of the 21st century. Through these changes, the National Committee has steadfastly believed that understanding China and crafting good policies based on that understanding would make Americans more prosperous and secure. We started Chinatown Hall 15 years ago in the hope of educating Americans throughout the country about China. Over the years, we have hosted former presidents, secretaries of state, national security advisors, and ambassadors to China. This year, for the first time, we have invited a journalist to serve as our speaker. At a time when all too often, traditional media focuses on the headline and a three-minute story, Dr. Fareed Zakaria looks at the issues in depth and truly educates his viewers. This should come as no surprise as Dr. Zakaria is the award-winning host of Fareed Zakaria GPS for CNN Worldwide, a Washington Post columnist, and a best-selling author of seven books, including the recently published 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. We are thrilled to have him here with us today, and I am happy I can play Fareed Zakaria to Fareed Zakaria and interview the interviewer. I would also like to thank our speakers at our 88 venues who are leading voices on U.S. foreign policy in China, as well as our partners across the United States and China for hosting this event. Thank you also to the Henry Luce Foundation for its continued generosity in funding China Town Hall and to our National Committee staff for working tirelessly to coordinate this event. Fareed, thank you so much for being here. Let me jump right into the questions. Uh, As I mentioned in my introduction, this is kind of the low point for U.S.-China relations since before we established diplomatic relations in 1979. Should the average American be concerned? How does it affect the average American's lives? Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, Steve, it's a huge pleasure to be here. Um, Yes, I think the, the, the average American should be concerned because the cliches are true. This is going to be the most important relationship of the 21st century. It's going to define uh, the 21st century. It's, it's the most, uh, it's the biggest new thing that has happened to the international system really in a hundred years, right? If you think about the rise and fall of great powers as being one of those great engines of, uh, of, of uh, change, turmoil, revolution, well, the rise of China is, uh, is on that scale, 20 years ago, China was 1% of global GDP. It's now about 15% of global GDP. There's virtually no country has had as dramatic a rise. And it's probably headed toward 20% of global GDP, which is roughly where the United States is. 
So the 21st century is going to be defined by these two powers. And what, what's interesting is you, you'll notice after the two of them, there's a big drop-off. So China is the number two economy in the world, but it's larger than number three, number four, number five, and number six put together. Similarly, defense budget. The U.S. is, of course, number one. China is number two. But the Chinese defense budget is larger than the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth put together. So that's why I, I tend to think we're back in a bipolar world, you know, a world in which these two superpowers, uh, one clearly bigger than the other, the United States by far the number one, uh, but they, they, they outrank everyone else. And the, the question for the 21st century is going to be, can these two superpowers find a way to coexist, um, to cooperate, uh, to compete, but to do so within the framework of a strategic relationship that recognizes there are huge costs to going down a path that leads us to another Cold War. Um, and if we can get that right, and this is on both sides. This is not, you know, we tend to often think of as though America is the only actor here. Obviously, China gets a vote on this too. But if we can do that, I think you could imagine a, a, a 21st century that's quite different from one that ends up being filled with arms races, conflict, proxy wars. You know, that's the, the, the thing people forget about the Cold War is the degree to which it transformed and warped not just international life, but the life of every, you know, the average person in, in, in these countries. And so that's, those are the stakes. Um, we are, we're, going to be, we're going to live in a bipolar 21st century. Uh, bipolarity is, is a given. A Cold War is a policy choice for both countries. But would you say we are in a Cold War now? No, I don't think. That's I think a long that, that, discussion in yeah, I think the that, that, newspaper these days. So the fundamental structural driver uh, of, the, of the Cold War was, um, let's remember, Stalin's decision to essentially invade all of Eastern Europe, to, uh, not, not quite invade, but the, the uh, Red Army had liberated those places from the Nazis to install puppet regimes there, then to try to go south into, into Greece and Turkey. And that then provokes a reaction from Western Europe and the United States, and thus begins the Cold War. So when you think about China, it has not yet done anything on that scale. Um, and more importantly, the Soviet Union and the United States were kind of hermetically sealed from one another economically, uh, even culturally, even during World War II. The, the, the peak year of trade between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War was about $2 billion of trade a year. The United States and China do $2 billion of trade every day. Right. And even, it might surprise uh, people watching to know, in the last couple of months, uh, we have been buying more stuff from China than, rather than less, despite all the, the geopolitical tensions. And that, get, that gets at a kind of fundamental reality of today's world, which is it is deeply inter interdependent in a very complicated way. So, you know, nobody decided that they wanted to have closer economic ties with China over the last three months. In fact, both sides have, you know, in many ways, the governments are trying in their way to untangle themselves a little bit. But here's what happened. Americans stopped going to the gym and started <laughs> to buy Pelotons. Well, guess where Pelotons are made? They're made in China. So you see, we, we, we're both locked into such an interdependent relationship that things happen uh, without anyone wanting them to. And by the way, that's one of the glories of the complexity of a kind of open uh, trading system in the world that, you know, you can get stuff from everywhere. You can, you can interact with lots of people. And if, if we did really go down a, the path of a Cold War, I think all that would unravel. It would become, we, we, you know, and, yeah. and in the worst case scenario, we go back to isolated, autarkic economies and a huge amount of, of conflict and confrontation. Your defense statistic is interesting because I often hear it that the United States defense budget exceeds the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh countries combined. But you talk about it that China's exceeds those, those next five also, yeah. which By is the way, a that, very different yeah. way of looking at it. That, that also happens to be true. The U.S. is so much higher. You know, I mean, the U.S. spends about $750 billion. China spends about 250 or something like that. And then it really drops off, as you can imagine. Yeah. But, but, but 
the and, and it's important to point out, you know, the Chinese have been uh, building up, uh, they've been expanding their, their military spending significantly. So it's not that there aren't reasons to be concerned. And again, it's not that the Chinese have not done things that should cause alarm. They have, and particularly under Xi. But the question is, you know, do we have, for the United States, this is a very difficult challenge. Um, the United States is very comfortable, historically, either withdrawing from the international system or dominating it. Withdrawing from the international system is, the, is Washington's farewell address. Just, you know, keep out of that damned European continent with all its ills and, and, and duplicity and Machiavellian uh, machinations. Um, John Quincy Adams says, you know, we don't want to go around the world looking for monsters to destroy. Domination is post-World War II, right? We basically built the international system in our image. The challenge is going to be for the next 100 years maybe, um, we're going to have to find a way to live within a system where we're still number one, but not, we are not, we don't embody the system. We're not so far above everybody else. And China, in that sense, becomes the principal country that uh, is, not, is, is a rival. Um, you know, we, we've, in some ways, we've had it lucky. In the last 60 years, 70 years, the two countries that rose economically to quasi-great power status economically were Japan and Germany, both in a sense returning. But, you know, it, it, it didn't change the geopolitics of the world at all because both were American allies. Both existed within the American security umbrella. Both were closely tied to the U.S. by treaty. So China is really the first great power to have risen into this post-World War II system that we built that is not a Western ally, yeah. that is not an American, I mean, if honestly, the, the Japan and Ger Germany could be described as American satellites. Yeah, yeah, and both were functioning democracies. Right. Um, which perfect lead into the first question from the audience, which is from Daniel Yu of the American Bar Association, and he asks, how do we balance our economic and business interests that you've referred to, desiring Chinese cooperation on global health and climate change, and China's potential threats towards Western values, such as human rights, democracy, regional and international peace? And obviously, he's referring to Hong Kong and Xinjiang right. also. It's a big question. In a way, it is the central question, which is it's, it's almost uh, asking how should we conduct our relations with China given the, the opportunities and the challenges, right? So the way I would put it is I think that there are some areas where you have to search for a win-win solution and for cooperation with the Chinese because everyone is better off that way. Trade is a perfect example. Um, the Chinese do cheat on trade, and they are protectionist on trade. By the way, so are we. The United States, Europe have massive agricultural subsidies, for example. Um, we have all kind of, every, everything the Biden administration is doing with regard to this Build Back Better plan, the Buy America provisions in that, are protectionist. They are against the spirit of the, the World Trade Organization. They would probably be found in violation if somebody brought them, you know. So uh, th there's a very good tally of this, and it points out in the last 20 years, the U.S. has put in place more protectionist measures than any country in the world, very much including China. China is not even second. I think it's Brazil, India, then maybe China is seventh. So China has many non-market features that are a huge problem. But I believe that there are win-win solutions here because the Chinese also want trade. They also want uh, to be able to be a player in, in a system in which they're increasingly moving up the value chain. So do you know who the largest filer of patents as a single company in the world last year was Huawei? So China is now getting to the point where it doesn't want intellectual property stolen because it's generating a lot of intellectual property. So there's that whole bunch of areas where there are real disagreements. The obvious thing to do is for the US, Europe, and Japan to get together, come, come up with a common negotiating position, and push hard with the Chinese. Then there are areas where the Chinese are trying to erode the basic norms, values uh, of the international system, um, human rights, 
the, the issues rela relating to whether or not you know the, 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 there should be pushback from outside the world when you renege on a tr on a treaty or or an agreement like Hong Kong, which it does not have some kind of clear legal status, but the the Chinese government did promise in in the handover documents to the British that they would they would honor a kind of one country two system um, uh, model, which they have not. So on those ones, I think the United States, the West um, in general, should stand tough. I mean, I, I think we should not compromise. We should not pretend these, these issues don't exist. We should air the differences. We should you know, ho hold them accountable in the sense that we can. Um, again, always better to do this with other countries than, than by ourselves. Um, but I, I fear that th this balance that the question was asking about is politically very difficult to do. You know, when, when Truman outlined to Senator Vandenberg, the Republican whom, whose support he was trying to get, that he wanted to have a strategy um, towards the Soviet Union that we now call containment, Vandenberg said to him, Mr. President, the only way this will work is if you go on TV and scare the hell out of the American people. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to be. And my fear is that, you know, in order to, to get some of the things people want to get on the, on the more confrontational side, you're going to exaggerate the, the threat, um, minimize the areas for cooperation. Um, and that could lead us down a very dangerous path because one thing we must always keep in mind in this, in this uh, conversation is China is not some inanimate object out there. It's got its own politics. It's got its own culture. It's got its own society. So when we do things, you know, it has, a, it has an impact on them. Yeah. Yep. Let's go to our first um, question from the audience from Catherine Ng, who is uh, right here in New York City, and she'll be on video. Hi, I'm Catherine. I'm calling in from New York City. My question is about U.S. shifting Asia priorities and relations with Europe. Since the Obama administration, the U.S. has been trying to pivot to Asia, but without too much success. We're now at a moment where the country is able to shift more completely to Asia, but is also straining alliances along the way. For example, we withdrew from Afghanistan, but at a bit of a cost there, the US signed an AUKUS deal that left France upset. It seems like in the Biden administration's hurry to tee up the China strategy and compete with China, that it's causing Europeans to feel the relationship with the US is a bit transactional and perhaps it's fueling strategic autonomy as well. And yet a strong European coalition is necessary to effectively confront China. How would you evaluate Biden's China policy as it currently stands? Thank you. Sure, it's a good question. I would say that she accurately described some of the, the, the costs along the way as, as the Biden uh, administration has been trying to pivot uh, to Asia. As she points out, the pivot really began uh, with Bush, um, the, the younger Bush's outreach to India uh, with the nuclear deal, which was a big, you know, an extraordinary reversal of U.S. policy uh, for 35 years with punished the Indians for having a nuclear weapon, and then we normalized it, and it was largely because there was the desire to get India, bring India into the fold, then the Obama uh, pivot to Asia, so articulated, uh, uh, putting troops in Australia, um, base, a, a, a kind of base in the Philippines, um, all of which then led to what the Biden administration has tried to do, as usual, Trump is a kind of weird aberration where he doesn't really quite have a policy. It's schizophrenic. One day he loves Xi Jinping, the other day he's bashing him. Um, I would say that the Biden policy is very much a continuation along the, this, these lines. And yeah, there were some, there were some bruised feelings. Uh, some of those you, can, you, can, you could have then dealt with better. The Afghanistan withdrawal could have been handled a, a bit better. Uh, the AUKUS deal could have been handled better. But the fundamental direction, I think, is correct, which is that the United States should be shoring up the alliances in Asia that will allow it to deter Chinese aggression, to maintain an American presence in the Pacific. Um, and by and large, I think the driver there has been Chinese behavior. 
Um, so you look at two places in particular, Australia and India. In both cases, um, the Australians were trying to play a game of having it both ways, of having very close economic ties with the, the Chinese and close geopolitical ties with the Americans. The Indians were trying to be very passive, and they were willing to kind of go along with uh, things like the Quad, as long as there was no military component, as long, you know, they would often send a very junior minister to those meetings. And then the Chinese under Xi became, you know, much more aggressive, uh, issuing the set of demands to Australia, in the case of India, having that border skirmish. And in both places, the domestic politics have changed. As a result, the foreign policy has changed. And there is much more of a sense of kind of inviting the U.S., to play a role to help these countries feel like they're not on their own. So I think it's broadly speaking been successful. One point I'd make about Europe, yes, we need to, we need to make sure that there's a way to pivot toward Asia that is both taking the Europeans along and through Europe as a sense, in a sense as opposed to against Europe. Um, there is going to be some concern on their part that they're being abandoned. I, I think it's actually the way to, to point it out is it's largely good news. It means Europe is not the cockpit of potential war. I mean, that was the, the issue in the, Soviet, in, in the Cold War, was people worried that the Soviet Union was going to move millions of men through Europe, uh, to, through the Fulda Gap in Germany to, to, you know, to kind of uh, conquer Europe. That concern is largely gone, though, of course, Putin does represent a threat to places like the Baltic states and, and, and Poland and Ukraine. But the action has moved to Asia. So naturally, U.S. foreign policy should move there. Um, Europe will never act, final point, because, because you mentioned, Europe will never be a strategic actor. It, it, that, that, is a, that is a bridge too far. It's a, it is an extraordinary, the European Union is an extraordinary achievement, uh, the most extraordinary sustained institutionalized cooperation among countries that have fought each other for four or 500 years but they will never become one country. I mean, Berlin and Paris will never subcontract their foreign policy. We have a question relating to the increase in kind of anti-Asian violence in the United States, anti-Asian activity in the United States from Alice in Austin, Texas. I'm Alice E. from Austin, Texas. I plan to watch the town hall with our Austin Asian Community Civic Coalition members. Here are my questions. FBI wrongfully accused many Chinese scientists before, like Wen Hongli, Xiaoyi Chen, and many, many more. If U.S.-China relationship going backwards, what challenges? are we going to face as a Chinese-American living in U.S.? Yeah, it's a, it's a very real concern. Uh, part of it is that once you sharpen the divisions and the geopolitical tensions rise, uh, it becomes much easier for people to start suspecting and being suspicious and casting doubt on the loyalty of Chinese-Americans in ways that are completely unfair. Um, you already see it uh, happening, you know, people like Mike Pompeo and uh, other Republicans have been accusing universities of becoming hotbeds of spying activity. Again, very rarely do they have specific charges or let alone proof, but these are easy, these are easy things to say. And I think we should be, we should be aware that, you know, th this is a, this is a challenge that, the, that Chinese Americans have faced almost uniquely among Asian Americans uh, because of the, you know, the Asian Exclusion Acts, the Chinese labor that was brought in, the way in which they have been historically discriminated against. So it's very easy to bring up, if you scratch these tendencies, it's very easy to bring up a certain amount of racism and xenophobia. Um, I worry a lot about this. And if you look back over American history, America reacts badly when it gets scared. When we get scared, you know, we, we lash out, whether it's at the Irish, Jews, the Chinese, the Red Scare, McCarthyism, even after 9-11, some of the, the attacks on Muslims. You know, if we were instead, again, to be calm, sensible, pragmatic, understand this is a challenging relationship, it's not just better for the relationship, better for the world, 
but we don't distort our own values and our own society in the pursuit of some, um, some confrontation abroad. Yeah, I think the good news on this is that the Asian American Pacific Islander community has actually begun to organize and we've seen uh, responses, you know, some charges have been dropped. Uh, we saw this case um, at the University of Tennessee, Professor Hu, who where the federal judge ultimately threw out the case. And then this past weekend, uh, the University of Tennessee reinstated the professor. So we're beginning to see progress and we're seeing letters from Stanford, from MIT, professors at Stanford from MIT objecting to using race or Asian heritage as a basis for um, any kind of investigation. Let's talk a little bit about you know, you wrote this very interesting piece about uh, normalizing many of the Trump, last month, no, normalizing many of the Trump administration's uh, foreign policies. Um, and you talk about Cuba, you talk about Iran, you talk about others. But for China, so tariffs, uh, delisting of Chinese companies from U.S. stock exchanges, visa restrictions, um, journalist restrictions, uh, state-owned media restrictions in the United States. Why are these still in place? You know, there's something about Donald Trump that I think people most don't, don't quite understand. He's, he's, he's very clever and in sensing the political mood. So in all of these areas, Cuba policy, Iran policy, and China policy, he, he changed the, the, the default position. He changed the, you know, the, uh, the operating position. And it turns out it's politically very hard to reverse it. Because take Cuba as a simple example. If, you, if Biden were to try and reverse Cuba policy right now, Senator Robert Menendez, the ranking Democrat, on the, on the, I mean the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, would be appalled. He's very hawkish on, on Cuba. Now Biden needs his vote on these two big bills that are coming up, right? So on China, I think that Biden criticized the tariffs throughout the campaign, in my opinion, completely correctly and intelligently, pointing out, A, Americans were paying the cost for the tariffs, 100% right. B, they were not working, 100% right. Uh, and C, by the way, you could point out that, that it hasn't changed Chinese behavior at all. I mean, but were he to reverse them, you will see the barrage of tweets from Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and things like that. Now, my own view is that is a mistake because I think that, first of all, policy toward China is too important to, to, to play the, the politics with. You should try to figure out what the right thing to do is and do it. And secondly, those guys are going to attack you no matter what. I mean, I, think, I, I don't think I need to tell President Biden we're living in a very polarized country. And if he wants to get a, a glimpse of that, watch the, the way in which Republican senators reacted to Biden's summit meeting with Putin, which was a pretty normal summit. They exchanged the usual free and frank exchange. The, the Fox News and Republican senators literally described it as Munich, as, as Biden having appeased Putin in a way that was going to lead to a world war. I mean, it was fan fantastical, right? And so if you're going to get, if you're going to get attacked as being Neville Chamberlain at Munich, when you have a routine bilateral with Putin, uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be attacked on your China policy no matter what. So you might as well do the right thing because you're going to pay the political price of being pummeled from the right anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the looming, not looming, the actual inflation that is now occurring in the United States combined with the beginning of the progressive Democrats advocating for an ending of the tariffs because of their regressive nature. The people who are most affected by these tariffs are, are poorer Americans. Do you think we'll see a reversal of that? And we're seeing Ambassador Tai speaking with Vice Premier Leo He. You think we'll see some of these tariffs get ended? I, I think you're beginning to see um, up the, 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 the reestablishment of real um, dialogue, which is very good. You're seeing the reestablishment of some kind of strategic relationship. I still think the Biden administration doesn't know how to handle the politics of the China relationship. Look, to be fair to them, part of the problem is they will have very few allies on the Democratic side either. I mean, you know, you look at Chuck Schumer, you look at Nancy Pelosi, 
um, you're not going to find, there isn't, there used to be in the, in the US Senate in particular, a kind of group of wise men who had a broader strategic national security orientation, the Sam Nuns of the world, the, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan's of the world, Luger, uh, and people like that. that those don't, people don't exist anymore. And so what you have now is a much more political, partisan um, uh, Senate. And so I think Biden is trying to figure out whether or not there's space there. My, my sense is maybe they, they would do it in the context of some kind of overall agreement where, they, you know, where the Chinese also make some concessions. But unfortunately, I don't see I don't see much movement. And as you say, it's um, it's highly regressive. These these um, tariffs are basically taxes that are paid for by middle class and working class Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in an inflationary environment, it's yeah. a good way to actually reduce pressure for inflation. Let's talk about uh, some of the shared challenges that the United States and China uh, are confronting, especially. Uh, climate change. We have questions. We have a partnership with the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University, and two of their uh, students have submitted uh, some questions on the topic of climate cooperation. So if we could hear from them. Hi, Farid. My name is John Rendon. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and the fifth cohort of Schwarzman Scholars. I'm here representing Meetup Chinese Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. My question concerns climate change. In the past, we heard climate change mentioned alongside pandemic control and prevention as an area where the United States and China, no matter their differences, could cooperate and find common ground. Yet the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic showed us that the differences between China and the United States state interests and government systems made that cooperation very difficult, if not disappointing. Why should we expect climate change to be different? Thanks. Hi, my name is Alliance and I'm currently a Swordsman Scholar at Tsinghua University residing in Beijing in China. Leading up to the COP26 conference at the end of this month, my question is, knowing that both China and the US are global superpowers with key roles in helping achieving a net zero future, so what are the immediate actions that both countries have to take in order to ensure that we're en route to a sustainable climate change future? Thank you. Well, they're both very good questions, um, and and the first one uh, pointedly says, you know, wh why has this been so difficult? And I think the reason it's difficult is because it's it's actually not an area where um, you are going to get much because of a treaty or an agreement between the two sides. I, on this issue, I, I dissent a little bit from the conventional wisdom. I, you know, the Chinese are going to do what they want to do and what they need to do to get their emissions down for their own reasons. Um, they're not gonna do them because the United States forces, it, forces uh, Beijing to do it. And the same is true of the, of the United States. These are decisions largely made by countries because of their own sense of commitment and, and political pressure or societal pressure. Um, and the Chinese have been doing a certain amount because there has been a lot of uh, a concern in China about dirty air and dirty water and such. But I don't, I don't quite see where the opportunity for a win-win here is in the sense that the Chinese are going to reduce emissions um, if they want to, and the, the Americans are going to reduce emissions if they want to, and uh, you know, may, maybe they'll get together at places like Paris, or the, the Paris Accords, which are entirely voluntary, and they can symbolically commit to them. Um, I, I think that the, the, the area for cooperation would be really if there were efforts to help the poorer countries in the world get to green energy faster, and rather than being completely competitive about it, to find ways to help with project financing and things like that. Right now, we're going, going about it in an entirely competitive way. The Chinese do their Belt and Road Initiative. The United States is trying to offer uh, various other forms, and it's trying to counter that. Um, that's probably suboptimal, but, but I have to say, my my. My biggest concern right now about climate change, you know, this takes us off the topic of US-China slightly, but is we are all committed and committing to a world in which we are gonna phase out these fossil fuels very fast. And so there's very little investment going in, a lot of shaming of it, uh, of it a lot of winding down of uh, natural gas, for example, in the, in the US. But we don't have green technology at the scale we needed, and most importantly, in what 
uh, utility would call in, in terms of base load capacity. In other words, the always on energy that, uh, that an electric utility needs to provide electricity when the, air, when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. And right now what you're seeing are very big gaps between, you know, you're winding down fossil fuel, but you're not ramping up, we can't ramp up green enough. And that's why you have these blackouts in places like California. That's why you have this energy crisis in Britain. My fear is we are, you know, this, this, is, this is not something you can just aspirationally wish for. It needs a lot of very careful planning. If you are going to take an, a, a one, one power plant offline because it's coal-fired or natural gas-fired, you have to have something that replaces it kilowatt for kilowatt. You, mean you have to find those sources, and if you can't find them, you have to keep the fossil fuel on for a little bit longer, you know, move from coal to gas because it's half the emissions. Like, these are difficult trade-offs, but in the, in the, it, it, with regard to the subject, people assume if your intentions are good, it's all, the problem is going to solve itself. It mm -hmm. won't. It takes a lot of implementation to make this work. But, but certainly sharing of technologies in this area would be beneficial sharing of technologies to protect cities, creating smarter cities. We've seen floods right here in New York. We've seen terrible floods in, in, uh, in China where we've seen significant deaths from in, the, in the metro. So kind of sharing technologies in that area would certainly be useful. And we're seeing an energy crisis, a power shortage in China, uh, which is based upon, I think, their attempt to wean themselves off of fossil fuels and, and go to, uh, to alternative energy. That's exactly. part of it. So exactly. For them, they're facing good. a similar situation. Coal is going down and they don't have quite the supply of yeah. what... But, but you part, know... Part of the reason, yeah. Some part of this, yes, you're right, best practices is the way I would put it with regard to urban policy, with regard to flood control, you know, hurricanes. There's a role for competition of, of, of ideas. Uh, you know, if, if Chinese companies are trying one, one technique for battery storage and U.S. companies are trying one, I mean, that's good old-fashioned capitalism, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and you will end up with more interesting, optimal solutions if they are actually competing against each other. Yeah. In your recent book, you talk about kind of the impact of the varying impacts of COVID. Uh, you know, I got something years ago. I, I always believe that climate change and economic crisis and terrorism and pandemic would bring the United States and China together. It would force us to cooperate. Didn't happen with COVID. What happened and what are the implications of it for U.S.-China relations? It's a great question because I too would have guessed that something like the pandemic could have could have had that effect. And I think two things two things happened and it's you know one of those kind of some parts of history are determined by large structural forces and sometimes there is the accident, the peculiarity that makes this that makes things go in the direction they go. The peculiarity here was the covid started in China. And, I, and the Chinese were very secretive and deceptive about, about it in its origins. I should point out, most countries, when, when an epidemic has started in that country, tend to be a little bit um, reluctant to share information. They feel guilty, they're defensive. The, if you look at SARS, MERS, Ebola, all of these have that characteristic. But in China, I think it was more pronounced because it is a very secretive, top-down, closed, command Leninist party, so there's no question. That made, that poisoned the atmosphere. The second piece is that the Trump administration massively miscalculated in its COVID strategy. It, it thought that the virus would go away. It thought that any kind of economic lockdown would be, would be foolish and, and not worth doing. It sort of took the, it, it, you know, it was not, a, not an entirely uh, crazy idea. It was. It took the view that look, we'll ride this out. The virus will will wa will wane the way that SARS did wane and MERS did wane, but they turned out to be wrong. So they confronted a full blown pandemic, and then Trump's basic response to everything is blame somebody else, and it, and so the whole Trump strategy became blame China, poison relations. You know, until then he had been playing this schizophrenic game where one day he loved Xi, one day he bashed him.
the COVID thing completely transformed it. And Trump is very good with public opinion, and he knew exactly how to play it, to turn the, the pandemic into the China virus, the Wuhan, Wuhan flu, uh, all that kind of thing. And that took us in a place where cooperation seemed, became impossible. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange because the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated to jointly inoculate the world from smallpox. And the eradication of smallpox was an extraordinary example of superpower cooperation at the height of the Cold War. This was in the 50s, so pre the arms control. This was at the point where people thought the United States and the Soviet Union could fight a nuclear war. And at that very point, they were cooperating on global public health. Yeah. We can't do it right now. Yeah, it, it's, it was one of the disappointments. Uh, we, of course, had reduced our um, medical presence in China prior to that. We had people um, from our CDC embedded in China's CDC, from our National Science Foundation. And in 2017 and 18, they got withdrawn, which didn't help us understand uh, what had occurred yeah, when and COVID started. And, and Steve, that's an important point about how to influence China. This is a huge country, civilization, 5,000 years old, now very rich and powerful. Some part of how we will, we will get them to not do, get them to do things we think are, are right and not do new bad things is going to be deterrence, is to be strong, be tough, push back, but some of it surely is also going to be cooperation, um, being there, um, involving ourselves, getting to know people, getting to, to, you know, as you said, our CDC, their CDC, our SEC working with their SEC. For two reasons. One, you do build some trust and goodwill. Secondly, you, you have some familiarity with, the, with, the, with what's going on in, the, in that place. And finally, they don't want to break the bonds either. They also, you know, interdependence creates a certain kind of asymmetrical power for you. You know, they don't want to get it all to be cut off and isolated. So that the threat of pulling people out could be, could be one of your uh, bargaining chips. If we isolate them completely, if we isolate ourselves completely, we lose much leverage over them. I mean, one of the things that I've always pointed out to people is we keep sanctioning countries with whom we have no contact. North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, and then Cuba, and then we're surprised that the sanctions don't work. Well, you, you, they, only, they don't hurt very much if the countries actually have very little dealing with one another. So keeping the bonds actually in a weird way gives us more leverage. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about trade and investment. As you've pointed out, it's, it's enormous and so important. And let's go back to the Obama years when Obama had led the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a high standard trade and investment agreement. Uh, Secretary Clinton and President Trump decided they were going to withdraw from it, and then President Trump won the election, and he did withdraw from it. Um, as you pointed out in a wonderful story, uh, the day after the United States announced uh, its partnership with Australia and the United Kingdom to provide Australia for, I think, $60 billion with nuclear subs, nuclear-propelled subs. Um, China, the day after, applied for accession to what was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's kind of the, it got amended somewhat and it now exists with 11 countries, including Australia and Japan. Uh, some of our closest allies. Um, you and I believe this is a big deal, but people don't much share our view. Why? What's going on here? Well, economics always kind of goes under the radar. Trade economics in particular is so arcane and, and, and complicated and obscure that people don't pay attention. But of course, it is often the big thing that undergirds uh, relations. So, uh, you know, it's possible that what's going on here is that the Chinese uh, realized that the real threat that they faced uh, was not an American aircraft carrier, but was that the United States was bringing together all the major economies in Asia in this Trans-Pacific Partnership, which were then going to have a, you know, a kind of counterweight to China and were going to be able to write the agenda, write the rules, uh, whether it's intellectual property, trade practices and such. Um, 
And so once America foolishly, you know, in a sense, uh, commits that the own goal of withdrawing from a trade treaty that it had sponsored, Im imagined, dreamed up, corralled these other 11 countries in Madrid, the Chinese were like, well, maybe we should get involved. Now, I don't think China will be, will be led into the TPP, but, it, but it's a kind of clever move. Um, and it highlights the degree, the cost that the United States is paying uh, in not being part of the TPP. You know, the, the TPP basically opened up markets like Japan to America that had long been closed. It, it actually had many concessions on uh, wages, on environmental issues that the left wanted and, and were able to get. It's a remarkably progressive trade treaty. But, um, the, you know, again, Trump poisoned the atmosphere so much that it became impossible to get out of it. Um, if things continue to go south, though, I do think the Chinese will, whether formally through the mechanism of joining the, the TPP or not, they will take advantage. If America retreats more and more into isolation and protectionism, the Chinese benefit because the rest of the world can't afford to do that. The U.S. is still a vast domestic economy. We think we're very globalized. We're not. 80% of the U.S. economy is a domestic economy. Um, trade is only 20% of our economy. But you go to Thailand, you go to Malaysia, you go to Singapore, you go to Taiwan. These countries are entirely dependent on trade. Even Germany, 50% of German GDP is, is trade. But you're thinking that China will never get in or will not get in for tough. the next there's decade? A, yeah, there's a provision in there that says non-market economies can't join. And um, there is significant, I think there's enough reality to China not having a, a, a real market economy. Um, and secondly, given where the Australians are and the Japanese are right now, it, you know, they, they would veto it, is my guess. I think it would take, it would take either significant reforms or significant cajoling from the Chinese. I think the Chinese have, you know, we've talked a lot about American policy. Xi has fundamentally mis misunderstood how to handle his Asian neighbors. I think that the, the Xi approach has been be very strong, be very tough, and you will command their respect. It's, n it's not working. It's having exactly the opposite impact. I can tell you intimately knowing the India story, the Indians were really not very anti-Chinese. They were being pushed by the U.S. to get more involved with the Quad. And then she you know, launches this skirmish in, uh, in the, Him the Himalayas, this border. So it's not clear what happened. It's not clear we, what we, happened. We don't it's know not, what happened. It's Nobody's explained it well. What we know is that the Chinese and the, the Indians fought hand-to-hand -hand because they'd been luckily not told to use, not, to right. use, not to use weapons. The Chinese ended up with 20 square miles of additional territory. But this is like frozen wasteland tundra territory. I don't know what they would do with it. But as a result, it completely changed India's uh, foreign policy toward China. They banned hundreds of Chinese apps. They've essentially banned all Chinese investment into the country. And they are now much more actively participating, even at a defense level, with the Quad. So I would, I mean, I would put it to Xi Jinping, was it worth it? You got 20 miles of frozen tundra and you changed, you know, the, the foreign policy of 1.2 to 1.3 billion people. I would argue the same with respect to the South China Sea. Right. That the consequences of China's actions in the South China Sea and the benefits that they derive don't outweigh the costs right. that they that it's created Entirely in terms right. of unifying uh, it's the Asian countries with the United States in opposition to China's. Right. There, there's uh, a there's action. there's a familiar dynamic in international relations, uh, you know, which is balancing. Countries um, countries first try to balance against a rising power, rising threat. Only if they feel they cannot balance, then they, then they jump on the bandwagon. So the truth is because of America in large part, these countries can balance. They can balance China. And so as long as that dynamic is at play, the, China, Deng Xiaoping was very wise. When he outlined China's uh, relations to the world and sort of said, keep, you know, hide your light under a bushel, don't, he, I think it wasn't just that he was saying we're weak right now. I think Deng understood that China is not the United States. The United States grew to great world power with surrounded by two vast oceans and two weak neighbors. Right. Sorry to the Mexicans and Canadians <laughs> listening. China is growing rich and powerful in the middle of Asia. 
it has 16 border you know, neighbors and 16 border disputes. And all these countries watch the rise of China and they get anxious. And you know, ma managing that rise is a task worthy of a Bismarck. And, and Xi Jinping is no Bismarck. Why? And then I want to get off of CPTPP, but, but during the Obama administration, national security professionals, so our armed forces, the Secretary of Defense said that, you know, joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership was more valuable than a bunch of aircraft carrier groups, that it really created um, another pillar for America's presence in Asia. Why are there's really silence today? from our national security professionals on that. Some of the you know, folks who work on economics said this would be good for America. The net growth in jobs is easy to quantify. This would be good. But there's not a bunch of national security folks who said this would be great for what the first questioner asks, our pivot to Asia. It's, I think it's an it's a important question. And it's fundamentally because trade has become a dirty word in, in Washington. Because everybody thinks that it is by focusing on trade and globalization and neglecting the, you know, the American worker who, whose wages have declined, uh, that, that that is what got us Donald Trump, that is what got us this wave of populism. And so everyone is sort of genuflecting to what they see as this political atmosphere. The truth is the United States did not open itself up blindly to trade over the last 20 years. We have actually not opened up our economy as much as other countries. We're with a laggard. And as I said, we have more protectionist measures in place. Many, many of those, by the way, are what hurt uh, American workers. And one of, the, one of the reasons for the decline in wages actually has to do with the fact that we weren't keeping pace with the rest of the world. The, the, the big number everyone talks about is this one China study that found 2 million jobs. American manufacturing workers uh, lost 2 million jobs because of what, they, what is called the China, uh, the China shock. Nobody read the study. That, that's over 15 years. Okay? That comes to about 150,000 jobs every year. Now, do you know how many, how many jobs American workers lose every year through the normal churning of the American economy? 60 million. So this is 150,000 jobs out of 60 million that are lost every year from through all kinds of reasons. Now, some of those are voluntary. People resign. People move, move locations. But even if you take it, there's a very good calculation done by the International Institute for uh, International Economics. It basically comes to the conclusion that for every job lost to trade with China, there were 150 other jobs lost by American workers to technology, to productivity gains, to all kinds of other things. None of those people have been, you know, are this, none of those job losses have become the center of American political debate. And it's important to point out, when we talk about manufacturing jobs, because that's what we're talking about with China, those that, and those were the two million lost. Manufacturing has is, is been a shrinking percent of the American workforce for 75 years. We've been going down, down, down. If you look at Germany, a country that has a trade surplus that supports manufacturing, the manufacturing is at the heart of the German economy. The decline in manufacturing in Germany is the same as the United States, in some areas even worse. And guess what? Which, what country is now seeing a decline in manufacturing jobs? China. Since 2012, manufacturing jobs have been declining in China. Why? Because as countries move up the economic ladder, they shift from, from goods-based economies to services. And when you move up to in, in services, you're losing manufacturing jobs. We, we produce more. This is, again, one of the things people don't understand. We make more stuff than we ever did before. Manufacturing output in America is higher than it's ever been. We just need fewer people to do it. I want to get to some of the soft power issues. Um, Amanda uh, from Los Angeles has asked a question uh, about soft power. So if we could hear her question. Hi, my name is Amanda Wallen-Savage, and I have a question about American soft power. American cultural products, whether that's film, TV, or pop music, have allowed people around the world, and especially in China, to learn about American society and values. However, today it's becoming increasingly difficult to access American media in China. What might the long-term implications of this trend be? Or, to put it differently, 
What will happen if America continues to lose its ability to leverage its soft power in China? It's a very, it's a good question. Um, two forces are at work. One is that China has become more closed under Xi Jinping and is, in a sense, kind of decoupling itself from the, particularly the intellectual, cultural uh, world in that way. I mean, you mentioned my books. Every one of my books was translated into mainland China until this last one. Um, before that, they would ask, they would often ask for, uh, you know, edits. Uh, there's a few paragraphs on Mao, they would want to cut those out, and I would wrestle with it, and, you know, I came to the conclusion better to have, better to have it out there in China, and I would have them append a note saying this, this book has been specially ed edited for the Chinese uh, market uh, with, you know, making it clear that this, this, was an, this was an abridged version of the book. But that is no longer possible. So you can see a marked closing down of the Chinese system. Um, the second piece that, that we should not underestimate is China is developing a huge popular culture of its own. So one of the things that I was struck by 10 years ago, this is when China was still very much opening up and liberalizing, was that you'd go to China and you'd talk to people then, you'd realize um, what we thought of as the biggest rock stars of the world, singers of the, in the world, movie actors, they were unknown in China. Um, the biggest um, movie uh, music people were all Chinese. Um, they, you know, I mean, they did, they did know some of our very biggest people, Britney Spears or, you know, Madonna or Taylor Swift now and people like that. But the vast majority of the, of the entertainment space is now Chinese. And that is, that is happening all over the world. Bollywood movies are 95% of the Indian market now. Um, Korean uh, popular culture is massively popular, not just in Korea and other places. And this is, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful phenomenon. You're seeing the rise of the rest, as I call it, the cultural renaissance of these places. Often they're copying a lot of American formats. So there's a Korean version of Friends and a Korean version of Modern Family and things like that. But in their own idiom and speaking their own language and things like that. And in that sense, we are losing um, a certain kind of cultural power. Look, the United States defined modernity for much of the world. When I was growing up in India, you, you watched American movies and sitcoms and music to understand what modernity was because America was the face of modernity. Well, now modernity has many faces. There is a Chinese face to modernity. There's a Korean face to modernity. There's, there is an, you know, an Australian face. And, and that's a good thing. We want a society, we want a world in which lots of people are doing well. Our greatest um, soft power was the image and the strength of our democratic system. That's the one I worry about. I don't care if people are watching American sitcoms or watching Korean sitcoms. What I worry about is that people don't respect the American system of government as being something that at the end of the day, secretly, aspirationally, everybody thinks this is where we should get to. That was very much part of every country's DNA, um, other than Europe, of course, which has had its own path, but um, that we've lost. The, we're not gonna be able to get to nearly all of our questions. I had questions on Taiwan and other questions, but let me just close with two quick questions. Uh, one, from your perspective, what is one common sense recommendation you'd make to the leadership in either or both countries to improve the relationship going forward? I'd probably do two. One is that they should set up um, more regular meetings between the, 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 the senior officials. I, I am a strong believer in this as Churchill said, better to jaw jaw than war war. You know, having actual contact make, would make a big difference. And I would say the second one is try to, try to be sens sensible and commonsensical about the economic relationship, which is clearly uh, can, can proceed on a win-win on a uh, platform, which is to say it is better for Americans and it's better for Chinese people if, if we were able to trade more, to engage in more economic activity. Think of the opposite. Imagine if China collapsed as an economy right now. It would plunge the United States into a recession. Um, why is that good for us? Why is it good for us to have a world in which fewer people can buy and sell and invest? And so 
try to decouple that from the genuine and legitimate issues that you have about Chinese predatory behavior or South China Sea, as you say, try to preserve the, you know, there, 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 there is, there are positive parts of the relationship that are positive for both the citizens of the U.S. and China and for the citizens of the world. You know, try to husband the good while also dealing with the bad. Last question comes from Webster Lewing from New Jersey. And he asked something which will be asked at all of the 88 venues uh, that are going to be watching this or that are watching this live. What can ordinary citizens do to prevent a new Cold War between the United States and China, as we discussed at the very beginning of this broadcast? It's a great question, and it's a very difficult one to answer because, I mean, generally Americans don't vote on foreign policy. They essentially delegate foreign policy to the executive branch. Even Congress doesn't tend to get too involved, though on China they have gotten very involved. Um, the average person, I think, you know, my, my feeling has always been that we somehow don't get people who have common sense, who are practical, who are pragmatic, uh, to be as energized, as, as vociferous, as active in the political sphere as the crazies. <laughs> you know, people who have passionate intensity on one side or the other, highly ideological, highly, you know, uh, ex extreme views. You know, think of the primary voters. Uh, in, in the Republican and the Democratic Party, who are usually 10% of the, of the voting. And now we've gotten to the point where it's, the, it's Twitter, which is 10% of that 10%. And somehow they frame the debate. They frame the dialogue. And everyone runs scared of getting an, you know, a series of angry tweets from somebody or getting primary voters upset. But there's this vast middle of the country of people who are sensible, pragmatic, you know. And I think for all those listening who I think are so inclined, you've got to get more active. You've got to, you've got to ha approach this with the same level of intensity as the people on the, f on the far right and the far left, because if you don't do that, your voice gets drowned out. Your preferences are, are not taken seriously. Um, and all I think people should be asking for is, uh, Let's just be sensible about this. There's a way to compete with China, to confront China, uh, and to cooperate with China within an overall strategic relationship that recognizes we're not going anywhere and we're not going to give up on our values. Um, but they also have, you know, they're, all, they're also going to have a, t a place at the table. China has been around for 5,000 years. It's going to be around for a while. I think that's a perfect way to end because that's what the China Town Hall is all about. It's about getting Americans to learn about China and when they learn about China, to learn more about China, learn more about what U.S.-China relations mean for them at home and to take that information and talk to your congressman, talk to your senator, talk to your governor. And that's the point. And you have done a fabulous job in educating all of the folks who are watching us tonight. I thank you uh, for engaging in this terrific conversation. And I want to thank our audience, too, for asking some terrific questions. Uh, please be sure to visit the National Committee's website and YouTube channel for the full recording of this event and for our other excellent programming. Thank you all for joining us. And have a great, whether it's your morning, noon, or night, have a great day. And thank you again for Reed. Thank you, Steve.
For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.